Welcome to the Idolcast. Hit it. Our opening song today is TVXQ's Merotic, performed live on Music Bank, December 26, 2008. I'll put the link to the video in the show notes, but two things worth listening for are the vocal ad-libs and the quote, clean lyrics. The line, under my skin, had to be changed to under my sky for broadcast because this super sexy song kept getting banned from television. The era around 2008-2009 when this was filmed is a transitional time for K-pop fandoms. And if you check the audience in the video, you'll see fans with balloons, pearl red in this case, rather than light sticks that would become standard only a couple of years later. This episode is part two of the story of TVXQ's rise and fall and rebirth, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, I'd suggest doing that first. Okay, so if you remember at the end of the previous episode, as we enter 2003, both SM Entertainment and the broader Asian music market are in real trouble. Here's where we left off. CD sales are cratering across Asia. 
but especially in Korea, where high-speed internet access has turbocharged a significant piracy problem in a country that was already known for a lax attitude toward things like copyright on music or just copyright on intellectual property generally. I've discussed it on the podcast before, but the black market for music was massive in Korea. Reports from Japan around this time said that of the bootlegged and counterfeit goods confiscated at their borders, 75% were from Korea. As global money began to pour into Korea, especially in the wake of the 1998 IMF bailout, the Korean government came under real pressure from organizations like the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative to bring their laws around intellectual property, IP, copyrights, patents, and so on, up to a, quote, global standard. And you can read, you know, American, Western European, Japanese standard for global here. So what I'm getting to is that when MP3 file sharing via websites like the Napster-like Soribada reached Korea in 2000, the culture around consuming music in Korea was already pretty laissez-faire, and music consumers were already far less tied to this idea of purchasing, you know, official albums from a record store, log by Sanscan, than in a country like America or Japan. There had been a bit of an album boom in the 1990s, especially as major music retail chains like Tower Records moved into Korea, but the sales boom did not last. According to the Recording Industry Association of Korea, revenue from CD sales was essentially halved between 1996 and 2002. There were attempts to stop piracy by, for example, in 2002, introducing a CD that could not be copied to a computer. One of the albums released using this copyright-protected CD was from the influential Republic of Korea hip-hop compilation series. It was also the final entry of that series, which should speak to how well the copyright-protected CD format went over with consumers. Things got so bad that in 2004, the Korea Music Producers Association gathered artists and other industry people, including HOT's Kangta, for a protest outside of LG Telecom to express their frustration with LG's new MP3 player, which did not include the digital rights management, DRM, that would prevent unauthorized, unofficial, black market, <laughs> pirated music from being played. People shaved their heads in front of the building. LG's new MP3 pawn was part of the early 2000s telecom wars, which is another story for another time. But the point is, again, that in the early 2000s, there was this existential angst over the survival of the Korean music industry that went beyond just flops and hits. 
And I'll add this as an aside here, you know, that foreign fans sometimes mock Korean fans for doing things like sending protest trucks to their idols' companies, but I think stunts like the LG Telecom one show that these kind of, you know, showy public protests, they're kind of pretty deeply baked into the music culture. So record sales were in freefall. I mean, that's bad enough, right? <laughs> like, how could it get worse? Well, if you remember from episode one, in 2002, the Korean government launched a massive crackdown on the entertainment industry. Payola, embezzlement, and other financial shenanigans were getting dragged into newspapers and into the courts. So the standard industry practices of things like offering financial incentives, wink wink, to television producers to get your artist a good spot on a music show, and in this increasingly tough business, every advantage counted, those were suddenly not okay. And one of the many companies hit was, yes, SM Entertainment. And SM Entertainment boss Lee Suman was one of the entertainment company executives who had fled Korea to avoid getting prosecuted. Massive fines were levied, people were investigated, and it absolutely had a further chilling effect on the music business at this time. Although it's debatable how much the industry culture of handshake deals and mutual back scratching would actually change. So another important factor here, Japan. So Korea and Japan have a long and difficult history, to put it mildly. Uh, so, you know, Japan colonized the Korean peninsula in the years before World War II. That's living memory for many people in the 1990s. And in a tension that still plays out today, Korean businesses want access to the massive Japanese consumer market, but the Korean public and the government aren't always willing to facilitate it. As domestic record companies began looking to boost their sales by moving outside their borders, because remember CD sales were dropping across Asia, but they weren't dropping in Japan nearly as quickly as they were in other places. So Japan was just this really juicy target if you were looking to actually sell albums. So I mentioned in episode one about SM trying to launch girl group SES in Japan, but another early link up was in 1999. So SM Entertainment had worked with Japanese studio Shirogumi, aka the people who brought you the classic teen idol schlock film, The Checkers in Tan Tan Tanuki to make a 25-minute 3D movie starring H.O.T. as some kind of outer space soccer players. It cost a lot of money. It lost a lot of money and was considered by non-fans to be pretty bad and has since been sent to whatever the SM Entertainment equivalent of the Disney Vault is, where no one has seen it since. So while that entire production was a massive fiasco, it does show that SM Entertainment already had an interest in Japan, or at least was looking for ties to Japan when AVEX came, you know, knocking on their door. And it also showed that SM was already trying to diversify beyond album sales, you know, as far back as 1999. And AVEX, if you remember from the last episode, is the popular Japanese dance music label that was quickly turning into a contemporary pan-Asian pop powerhouse thanks to acts like J-pop diva Hamasaki Ayumi. And in the late 1990s, AVEX had put feelers out into Taiwan, where they'd partnered with local firm Rock Records, and then moved into Korea, where they'd found a hot, 
up-and-coming independent company called SM Entertainment. So this deal with AVEX would become a lifeline for SM in the early 2000s because it's thanks to the support of AVEX in Japan that a young SM artist called Boa was able to take her modest domestic Korean success and rocket to the top of the charts in Japan and around Asia. So Boa was a true pan-Asian success story. She was an AVEX success story. And to get yourself into SM's mindset at this time, okay, so it came out in 2001 that there were these new Japanese history textbooks that kind of soft-pedaled the era of colonialism in Korea and boycotts of Japanese businesses were threatened in Korea. And I found an article where this SM Entertainment spokesperson says, I can't agree with the distorted textbooks interfering with business. <laughs> you know, to quote one of the K-pop queens of today, dollar bills, dollar bills, keep falling for me. I love the way it feels. So considering AVEX had saved SM's bacon with young Boa, it really is hard to argue with the SM spokesperson not wanting a spat over Japanese middle school textbooks to interfere with that all-important revenue. Dollar bills, dollar bills, won't you fall in for me? I love the way it feels. So another factor to keep in mind is that at this time, 2002-2003, the Korean pop scene has moved almost completely away from dance music and teen pop idols. Not only had lip-syncing been banned from some major television channels as a way of pushing back against these dancing idols, but the popular acts at this time were either sexy, kind of adult-leaning acts like Lee Hyori, Rain, Seven, genuinely talented vocal groups like YG Entertainment's Big Mama, an act that YG deliberately marketed as ugly, even though they were all perfectly fine-looking women. And these pure hip-hop acts, which had boomed thanks to rappers like Cho P. D. you can hear about him more in episode 50, and this trio, CB Mass, who actually took aim at SM and their rival company, Citus in a 2001 song called Get Up, which says, in rough translation, SM and Citus are stuffing their pockets copying Japanese dance. Harsh, but likely echoing the opinions of a not insignificant segment of the pop music listening audience in both its anti-Japan and anti-idol stance. <laughs> So what it comes down to is that SM Entertainment faced problems on multiple fronts. Album sales on a sharp decline across the board, government crackdowns on the old ways of doing business, and a lack of appetite in the public for the type of acts that SM Entertainment specialized in. And here's another important piece of this story. Despite the bottom falling out of the teen idol market in Korea, 
SM Entertainment was still attracting talented trainees via audition and scouting and had begun formalizing their training system. In early 2003, SM Entertainment had even opened their for-profit Starlight Academy, which was run by yet another SM Entertainment subsidiary company. Students at Starlight were not considered SM trainees per se, and most would need to pay tuition. The hook was that while you weren't guaranteed a spot as an SM trainee, attending Starlight would get you in front of the SM talent scouts, while bringing in a nice passive income for SM entertainment. But even for those talented kids who passed auditions and became trainees, agency trainees were not, and are not, guaranteed a debut. Despite that crucial fact, as it later came out in court, SM entertainment trainees were asked to sign exclusive contracts as a 2006 court case filed by actor Yu Min-ho revealed. In January 2003, he'd signed a contract with SM Entertainment that tied him to the company for 10 years after the release of his first album, with a penalty of, quote, five times the amount invested by SM, three times the expected profit during the remaining contract period, and an additional compensation of 300 million won, unquote if he broke the contract. In 2007, the details of Kim Ji-hoon's contract with SM Entertainment were also made public in a similar lawsuit. His contract, signed in 2001, was exclusive for a period of only five years from the date of the release of his first album. The problem is that Kim Ji-hoon, like Yoo Min-ho, was an actor and neither would ever release an album, which meant that they were both tied to SM indefinitely, and he was subject to similar draconian penalties for breaking the contract. SM Entertainment suffered no penalty if they failed to keep their end of the deal. The company's argument was that they had invested a lot of money in these young trainees and deserved some guarantee of payback if the trainee left. But the judge slapped them down, saying that the entertainment business was high risk, high reward, and if you want the high reward, you need to accept the high risk. In the last episode, I emphasized that Isuman and SM had not been an outlier during the 2002 crackdown on entertainment industry corruption. But that's not quite true. There was one exception. SM Entertainment had been singled out for the draconian penalties they'd imposed on talents for breaking their contracts. Penalties, and this is important, out of step with the rest of the industry. The Korean Fair Trade Commission had even issued a corrective order about their contracts in July 2002, at which point SM Entertainment sued the FTC. It wasn't until 2004 that the Seoul High Court ruled that these contracts were, in fact, an unfair trade practice. It could be coincidence, but soon after this judgment, HOT's Moon Hee-jun, who was mentioned in the lawsuit as having signed one of these unfair contracts, moved from SM to a different company. So this is where the Korean music industry and SM Entertainment stand as we pick up our story from episode one. It's mid-2003, Yoo Soo-man finally returned to Korea to face the embezzlement charges. Spoiler alert, he would eventually be pardoned. And Boa is the one SM Entertainment artist bringing in significant money. And young Boa is grinding hard for that money, not only in Japan and Korea, but globally. With the industry in something of a slump, Boa's success across the region is held onto as a source of pride, not just for SM, but for Korean entertainment, Hallyu. 
and her crowning achievement of 2003 is a televised showcase that aired on December 26th with another global pop sensation, albeit this one from the Western Hemisphere, Britney Spears. And there's one more musical guest. SM Entertainment proudly presents their brand new boy group singing NSYNC's famous acapella arrangement of Oh Holy Night. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of a disabled spouse. A trail of hope The really world rejoices For yonder praise A new and glorious morn On your knees Oh, hear the angels' voices Dongbang Shinki, DBSK, TVXQ, THSK, and in Japan, they'd be known as Toho Shinki, the gods rising from the east. Despite BOA's success in Japan, TVXQ was initially formed to pick up where HOT left off and target the massive Chinese market. HOT member Moon Heejun revealed in an interview recently that HOT had a massive Chinese fan club membership when they were disbanded. So you can understand why Isuman and SM would want to try and recapture HOT's glory days. TVXQ's name, the members' nicknames, and even their early wacky visual K styling all seem to be a nod to HOT's popularity in China. TVXQ's introduction on the Boa Britney showcase showed them all dressed in black with these spangly silver accents singing a cappella. It signals that these boys were not going to be mere singing entertainers, to quote. Isuman in his 1999 uh, op-ed, which you can hear about in episode one. But, but these guys were singers. They were real singers. And they were marketed as a group where each member could take a lead vocal, unlike those dance-heavy groups of a couple of years ago. These five boys, they didn't know it yet, but they would eventually become the foundation of K-pop as we know it today. Without TVXQ, the Korean idol industry would almost certainly have faded and passed leaving us with nothing but our yellow and white balloons and fond memories of the hammer dance. 
as I begin to introduce the trainees who became TVXQ. Remember, they were preparing for debut not only in the middle of an industry meltdown, but also in the middle of SM Entertainment's lawsuit against the FTC for making talent sign unfair contracts. And there would have been a lot of pressure on these teenagers to sign whatever was placed in front of them. Not only because they may not have another chance to become a singer, but some of them desperately needed the money, and also, possibly, they may have had the sense of obligation to SM Entertainment, knowing the investment already sunk into their training and debut preparation, a number estimated to be about 8 billion won by an SM spokesperson. So this is TVXQ as selected by then SM CEO Kim Kyung-wook. Kim Jun-soo, aka Shia Jun-soo, joined SM Entertainment as a tween trainee in 1999 with the strong encouragement of his parents, who, well, let's just say they were very enthusiastic about the money he could be earning for them. So he was not only extremely cute, but he also had a powerful singing voice, and he'd been working as part of a trio with two other trainees, both of whom would eventually end up in Super Junior. And even at this young age, his vocal ability really shines through. So after passing an audition for SM at the age of 14, Jung Yuno, aka You Know You Know, famously ran off to Seoul to become a trainee against the wishes of his father in 2000. He worked low-wage jobs and even slept rough when he didn't have enough money. That passion for hard work and determination to succeed would carry Yuno through the rest of his career. And even as a trainee, his stage presence was obvious, and he was even spotlighted in a 2001 song by SM soloist Dana, who at the time was being promoted as the next POA. And ironically, she would re-debut a few years later as part of The Grace, the female version of TVXQ. Kim Jae-jung, aka Hero Jae-jung, joined SM as a trainee in 2001 at 15 years old. The way he tells the story, he was so desperate to get out of his rural hometown that he ran off to Seoul with nothing but bus fare for a one-way ticket in his pocket. Like you know, Jae-jung worked really, really hard, earning money at part-time jobs to pay his way in the city. And before getting selected for TVXQ, both Jaejung and Yuno were part of an F4-style group called the Four Seasons, and they were the only two who'd worked together. Yeah. 
Chim Changmin, aka Max Changmin, is the maknae or the youngest member of TVXQ. The story goes that he was scouted while playing badminton, and even though he didn't want to audition to be a trainee, his mom made him go so that she could meet Boa. Changmin joined SM as a trainee in 2002, and rather than a love of singing or dancing, my impression, and this is just my impression, is that he has this athlete's mindset of just not wanting to lose. And at their debut, Changmin was especially known for his large eyes, and he was nicknamed Bambi for his deer-like appearance. But at least in my opinion, that sweet exterior covers a core of steel. <laughs> Park Yu-chun, aka Mickey Yu-chun, joined SM as a trainee in 2003. His family had moved to the United States in the wake of the financial crisis, but after winning a local singing competition held by the Korean community, um, Yu-chun had moved to Seoul to try his luck there. Um, yeah, and since this new group was going to be the next generation of HOT, it seems pretty clear in retrospect that Yu-chun was slotted directly into the Tony An role as the returnee from America. So the five trainees first met as a group on July 26, 2003 at a beauty parlor, about a month after Isuman had returned to Korea to face the embezzlement charges. And there was some uncertainty at first as none of the five had worked together except, as I said, for Jaejung and Yuno, but they were all sent to live together and train together for the next few months, and then sometime in November or December 2003, they were told they would be debuting and given the legendary name Dongbangshinki. Once this train was in motion, they would not be able to get off. So a couple of weeks after their dramatic introduction on the Boa Britney Showcase, TVXQ's debut single Hug was released on January 15th, 2004. 하루만 네 방에 침대가 되고 싶어 Oh baby 더 따스히 포근한 내 품에 감싸고 채우고 싶어 안심재근 뒤적임도 너의 조그만 속삭임에 난 꿈속의 괴물도 
it was a sweet mid-tempo ballad, very much in the style of popular Korean drama OST songs like Sweet Dream from the popular 2002 drama My Love Patsy. It's gonna be another starred SM Talents. Kind of it's complicated. She was supposed to debut in a girl group with Boa, but SM didn't have the money at the time, so they outsourced her. Jung Nara, who also performed the theme song. So for old heads like me, Hug has this distinctly Korean ballad sound. The harmonies, the vocal tones, the rhythm, the chord progressions. Listening back almost 20 years later, it has this nostalgic sound. It's the sound of a bygone era, let's be real. <laughs> the MV was a soft, creamy daydream, featuring lots of big eyes and tender looks to camera. The song and video are like a hug on a rainy day. Just, just warms you up from the inside. It's a very sweet song. <laughs> Despite TVXQ's styling, Hug really broke from the dance-heavy hip-hop-influenced boy groups that had bubbled up post-HOT. But while TVXQ were musically different from a group like HOT, they were still presented as idols. And there was this glamour and sense of performance baked into everything that they did. So here's what I mean. A few days after Hug was released, another vocal-based boy group debuted called SG Wannabe, who were under the Chabal-affiliated Mnet label. SG Wannabe's debut song, Timeless, has an extremely similar feel to Hug. <laughs> And SG Wannabe were also marketed as this boy group who could sing. But SG Wannabe looked and acted like boys next door, not idols. 
They had normal haircuts, they wore normal clothes, and they stood around on stage like normal dudes when they performed. And even in their re relatively, you know, for idol standards, subdued debut stage, TVXQ had worn spangly accessories that sparkled under the stage lights. They had carefully styled hair, and they danced. But SG Wannabe were, you know, just what they said they were, a vocal group. And don't get me wrong, SG Wannabe were a good group and they had a lot of fans. And depending on how you want to measure popularity, they were actually probably more popular than TVXQ in Korea in those early days after debut. But let's be real, by 2004 in Korea, the ceiling of earnings for a purely vocal group like SG Wannabe was just a lot lower than it would be, potentially, for an idol group. And SM Entertainment understood that, even if the company was in the slump. Because TVXQ had something that SG Wannabe didn't. Organized and devoted idol fans. Cassiopeia. Something to understand as we dive into what happened next is the mentality of those fans. So remember, album sales were tanking across the region, and the Korean music industry hadn't quite figured out what to do about it. At the same time, sales were still a primary source of revenue for music companies. So a Norby group like SG Wannabe, they can only release maybe one album a year and still expect a substantial part of the fan base to buy it. Release two or three albums, raft of singles, there's no way normie music fans are going to sink that much money into a group no matter how much they like them. You know, you risk audience fatigue. Meanwhile, a group like TVXQ can release three albums, a full slate of singles, and expect every fan to buy at least one copy. Every fan, plus merch, plus fan club memberships, online content subscriptions, and so on. So as you look at TVXQ's activities, keep that in the back of your mind. From February through the spring, TVXQ did the rounds of Korean music shows, gathering fans with every appearance. The songs they performed were Hug and a B-side from the single My Little Princess, which is another ballad. <laughs> As summer hit, they began making their first moves into the Chinese-speaking market. Unfortunately, TVXQ did not speak Chinese, so watching them 
you know, at, at things like the red carpet for the 15th Golden Melody Awards in Taiwan in May 2004 is quite painful. The members, and please remember, Chungmin isn't even 18 at this point. Um, yeah, they, they try to look like they aren't completely confused by, by what's happening while being asked questions in Mandarin. So the second single, one of my personal favorites, The Way You Are, is an up-tempo dance number written by Daniel Pender, who's a Scandinavian pop songwriter, and it was released on June 24th, 2004. So the MV for The Way You Are takes place in what looks like an upscale bar with copious shots of pool balls being sunk and all the members wearing lacy black tops and leather pants. Again, Changmin not yet 18. And taking us right back to the glory days of H.O.T. Their hair gives major visual K vibes with lots and lots of volume and asymmetrical chunks. So if hug is this gentle embrace, the way you are said, make sure you don't poke your eyes out with my spiked hair, babe. Singing entertainers were back, baby. Oh yeah. And they were singing while entertaining us. First participated in the SM Town promotions with the Easy Breezy Drive, written by the same songwriter who gave us hug. circuit with The Way You Are, and I recommend all of these performances. The styling is incredible. And then their first Korean album, Triangle, was released on October 14th, 2004. And in the middle of all of this, they found time to travel to Los Angeles to participate in the 2004 Korean Music Festival, held at the Hollywood Bowl. They sang their brand new ballad, Miroyo, I believe, to an audience full of screaming teen girls waving pearl red balloons. (laughs) 
heavy metal, R&B vocal lines, classical music, and featured an incredible anime-themed MV for the most H.O.T.-like song the group had done yet. This was the full SM production package. The styling is just, it's amazing, with the members looking like something out of the Final Fantasy series, and Boa doing this guest appearance dressed like she'd just arrived from Lothlorien. And Yuno has these feathers glued around his eyes that make him look like a fallen angel. Again, no matter how good a group like SG Wannabe is, and they were good, please understand they were good, vocals alone cannot match the power of Yuno looking like a fallen angel. So along with BOA, SM rock band Trax also guest starred on the song. So Trax, as a side note, had just debuted in July 2004 and they were meant to attack Japan's rich rock market. TVXQ was in China, Trax was going to go to Japan. Their single Scorpio, which was released in December 2004, was even produced by Yoshiki from X Japan. So, Anyway, things seem to have been going along just fine for TVXQ. Or were they? 
in the middle of a performance of Miruyo on Inkigayo on November 21st, 2004, Yuchun started crying. Fans flipped out. They were upset. They were just, yeah, it, it, just mass chaos. The dreaded words were being whispered around fan spaces. Member rotation. So this is a concept that Isuman had floated with HOT to extreme fan pushback. And spoiler alert that he would not give up on until he was booted from SM completely in 2023. The fan outrage was immediate. It was massive. Cassiopeia went to battle. There was a website, which now only exists in partial form on the Wayback Machine, www.only5tvxq.com, that had an online petition and a call to boycott SM until this was resolved. And yeah, fans, they answered the call to battle. Five days later, November 26th, 2004, five, five, five days later, Right? The situation had become so untenable with fans actively camped outside of SM protesting that the members held a last minute press conference on the sidewalk. And full credit to YouTube commenter Viv Cameron for this translation. I will link the video in the show notes. So Jinsu says, You all seem to be under the impression that other members will be rotated into TVXQ and be active as TVXQ. That is absolutely not true. TVXQ is five members. Our target is Asia. So only in China, the five members will not change, but one more person will come in to strengthen slash reinforce and will be active as six members in China only. Then in Japan and Korea, us only five members will put out albums. This was TVXQ's first big crisis. Despite this, you know, sidewalk press conference, rumors still swirled. Was it really true that no members were going to be removed? The Taiwanese press had reported on November 22nd that auditions were to be held in Taiwan to select a new member. And if this press conference was a cover-up for a botched rotation, who was it that was going to be rotated out? Which member needed to be protected by the fans? Was it Yuno? It was one of his fan sites that had allegedly been one of the key organizers of the protest. Was it Yuchun? who had been crying? Was it Chaejung that fans speculated that, that that had been hinted at in a recent photo book? And what was up with this additional member to be added for the Chinese market? Again, a strategy Isuman would later employ to similar massive fan backlash with Super Junior. Cassiopeia could not trust anything coming from the company. And though the flames died down after the protest, the seeds of doubt had been planted in the fandom and likely within the group as well. In the middle of all of this drama, TVXQ had gone to Japan for a quick promotional trip to celebrate the release of a commemorative Japanese version of Hug, which was distributed on the AVEX-affiliated label Rhythm Tracks. The song was considered, I think, something of a test balloon release for SM Japan, and in general, it's not considered an official debut. So while fans in Korea were circulating the online petition and whipping support for a boycott, on November 23, 2004, TVXQ arrived at Narita Airport outside Tokyo where they greeted fans and Japanese media at the airport with an adorable song, Konnichiwa, 
or hello. They did a quick tour of some major record stores and returned to Korea, where they were greeted by the protesting fans at the airport and were followed by the protesting fans to SM headquarters, where they then had to give the emergency press conference. Fun times. The shifting of focus of Japan, though, this did not come out of nowhere. So yes, BOA had done well, and yes, if you wanted to sell albums, Japan was still buying them. But TVXQ had, you know, they'd originally been targeted at China. There was all this, you know, hey, let's go to China, let's go to China. But there was another factor, a huge, huge factor, and summed up in these these three words, right? Suyu no Sonata. In April of 2004, Japanese national broadcaster NHK had started airing Suyu no Sonata a Korean drama that we know in English as Winter Sonata. It was a massive hit with women in their 40s and 50s, kickstarting not just a boom of female leisure tourism to Korea, but it also made an icon out of leading actor Bayong Jun, or as he's known to his Japanese fans, Yon-sama. <laughs> A couple of days, and I mean literally a couple of days after TVXQ made their modest greeting to the press at Narita Airport on November 23rd, Yon-sama arrived on November 25th to promote a new photo book and photo exhibition. He was greeted by 3,500 fans, and they followed him to his hotel, where 10 women were sent to the hospital after getting injured trying to chase his car. And I want to emphasize, these women were not teenagers. They were in their 40s and 50s, sent to the hospital because they were chasing an actor's car. The same day that TVXQ gave their sidewalk press conference to their teenage fans, Yonsama addressed the Japanese media to humbly apologize for the hysteria he'd caused. All while, Tokyo riot police kept an eye on the crowd of housewives. Literally. And then there was the Yonsama effect. Every product he endorsed was suddenly experiencing this massive bump in sales. According to one news article I saw, Latte had put his face on packets of gum, and women were just going to stores buying like whole pallets. And the same article said that electronics chain Big Camera said that women were coming in like and asking for Yonsama's camera. That's pretty incredible, and I strongly suspect that the SM boardroom looked at what was happening in Japan and were like, all right, let's, let's get us a piece of that sweet housewife pocket money too. And I say this because JYP packed up massively popular Rain to Japan right around this time, where he released a Japanese edition of his album It's Raining on February 16, 2005, followed by a massive tour in the summer culminating at the Budokan. YG Entertainment quickly hustled Seven to Japan, where he released his Japanese debut on February 23, 2005, a song called Hikari. 
The TVXQ made their actual official Japanese debut a couple of months later on April 25th, 2005 with Stay With Me Tonight. And it sounds exactly like what it is. A low-budget J-pop boy group song. songwriter and the charms of TVXQ's voices are handcuffed by a very pedestrian melody, an arrangement probably better suited for some of the non-singing, quote, singing entertainers from an agency like Johnny's and Associates. And it sold about 10,000 copies. So TVXQ would spend the rest of 2005 bouncing back and forth between Japan and Korea. As soon as a promotion wrapped up in one country, they'd be shuttled back across the Sea of Japan slash EC to release something else in the other country. After the promotions of Stay With Me Tonight and a quick tour around the country, they were packed off to Korea for promotions for the 2005 summer single album released June 25th, 2005, the title track of which, Hayaya, they'd somehow found time to film in Bora Bora and then travel back to Japan for the July 13th, 2005 release of Somebody to Love, also written by Haneoki K, and also selling about 10,000 copies. promotional activities, including a small acapella tour of various record stores. And then in August came the A-Nation Festival held by Avex, who also announced the purchase of a large stake in SM Entertainment. So the reception at A-Nation must have been disheartening for the young group, especially knowing how popular they were outside Japan and that their fellow countryman Rain was off headlining the Budokan. There was a core group of Cassiopeia with their pearl red balloons at the very front of the stage, but you know, you watch the video footage and it's clear no one else knew who they were or cared. They were the bathroom break act, and TVXQ in their performance looked and sounded like a generic J-pop group. Actually, they look and sound like a low-budget Johnny's and Associates group, with you know even doing kind of a low-budget Sakurai show of Arashi-style rap. And that is not what the attendees of A Nation were there for. Something had to change if they were going to get any traction. But now, with Avex owning a bigger stake in SM Entertainment, it would. Bye-bye SM Japan, hello Avex. But first, in September, 
there was the Rising Sun showcase in Korea as pre-promotion for their second Korean album. During the rehearsals, Jaejun was rushed to the hospital with what sounds like a chronic stress injury that had finally snapped. Literally, the cartilage in his knee ruptured, which is a very common stress injury for people like high-performance athletes and professional ballet dancers. Uh, and considering TVXQ were neither, it seems to me that this is a sign that the members were being worked too hard and without proper rest and physical training. As is the fact that despite the media reporting that Jaejung had been told to rest for at least a week, four days after collapsing, he was on stage for the Rising Sun showcase. And the footage is it's brutal. Fans are sobbing in the audience while Jaejung himself looks ready to burst into tears. And yeah, it's, it's not easy to watch. So the album Rising Sun was released on September 12, 2005, and promotions went ahead through the fall with a masked dancer standing in for Jaejung on music shows. The title track was another classic Yoo Young Jin SM production joint, and the album did, you know, just about as well as Triangle. A strong showing from the young group, but there was room for growth. A lot of room for growth. And then back to Japan for the release of My Destiny, their third Japanese single, and the first one post-AVEX buying a big stake in SM. And the change in quality is enormous. The song was written by Matsuura Akihisa, who has an ear for vocal R&B, and he would actually go on to work with artists known for quality vocals like Little Glee Monster, Misha, and Juju. So My Destiny is a smooth, R&B ballad that really gives the members voices center stage. They no longer sound like discount Johnnies. They sound like what they are, a vocal-based R&B Korean boy group from Avex. <laughs> interesting to compare the smooth lines of My Destiny with the bombastic Rising Sun which had been released just weeks before. Yeah. 
잃어버릴 것만 같은 날들 비상하리란 꿈의 파편들로 맞은 나의 아침에 반짝임이 없는데 진실은 누구라도 갖고 있는 것 하지만 보여준 얼굴인 거짓 뿐인 것 영원에 남겨진 나를 찾는 My Destiny is a straight-ahead R&B ballad, Rising Sun, the full Yoo Young Jin SM production package, heavy metal, dance music, R&B extravagance. The video for My Destiny shows the members in various classic romantic scenarios. Junsu is in a church clutching a bouquet of flowers. Yuno is getting drenched in the rain. You know, all of this very winter sonata, you know, playing into the, the image of the romantic Korean man. While the Rising Sun video is this frenetic explosion of post-apocalyptic dreamscapes and erotic Christian imagery, and in a lot of ways, I think this, this right here, My Destiny and Rising Sun, is the beginning, the real beginnings of TVXQ splitting into two distinct groups. There's Dongbang Shinki in Korea, a group who had outrageous hair and did the full SMP thing. And then in Japan, there's the struggling Tohoshinki, who are a classy AVEX boy group from Korea who sang, you know, panty wedding R&B songs. And as we enter the end of the year award season, TVXQ is announced as selling just over 600,000 albums within Korea. That's sales from their first two albums, Triangle and Rising Sun, who had each sold about 300,000 copies in 2005. Uh, which was good enough to get them second place behind, wait for it, wait for it, SG Wannabe, who had sold about 660,000 albums from a regular album and a irregular album, and that would be 500,000 and 150,000, respectively. So remember what I said about the devoted fans, right? But with the additional sales of the singles from Japan, it was enough to carry TVXQ over the threshold to become the biggest Korean artist by sales volume in 2005. And if that wasn't enough, they're roped into helping launch SM Entertainment's new boy group, Super Junior, with a single called Show Me Your Love. You can hear more about Super Junior in my history series, but quite a few of the underlying problems we've picked out in this episode will also be fully unleashed with Super Junior. So anyway, as we close out part two of this saga, TVXQ are being worked like dogs on both sides of the EC slash Sea of Japan, to the point that Jejung has already been sidelined with a major stress injury. They have a fairly large and devoted teen fan base in Korea, but despite their hustle, filming variety show content and you know magazine fluff pieces along with touring and music promotions, they have yet to break through to the Japanese market. However, AVEX, they did just buy that bigger stake in SM, and sales of their third Japanese single had seen a rise of about 50% over the first two. So there was a ways to go, but Toho Shinki were definitely on the way up. So let's play TVXQ out for part two with a B-side from Rising Sun, 
featuring lyrics by both You Know You Know and Miki Yuchun. Love after love. Yeah. Always by my love. By my tears. Guarantee wasn't that of lovely fantasy. Always happen to a lot, no advice. 